Okay, well, it's good to see so many of you back. After the first week, it's usually, oh, we don't get to ask questions? We're not coming back. But I never said you couldn't ask questions. Just before or after. Okay, here's some questions Laurie has for you. Did you receive the Old Testament survey email Friday? If you didn't, see her in the back. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. Um, we're hoping nothing went wrong, but it may have. But if you didn't add your email, then you didn't get it. Uh, let's see. The cla- oh, the video. Uh, so we've done, we've done, this is the eighth time we've done the class, and last time we went through and we thought, we should really do video. So we, last week we experimented with taking video and have concluded that it was good to run the experiment, but we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> so we'll continue to have audio, but no video. The candy bowl is back. And for, so from tonight on, if you would like to see candy in the candy bowl, please bring a bag, preferably unopened. <laughs> and thank you, Robert, for the first contribution. Thank you for that. Uh, let's see. Oh, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, tonight, I don't know the score, which is not for you to tell me. If the Cowboys play an evening game um, and you're choosing to watch that on your phone rather than listen to me, that is certainly your choice. Uh, But we don't share sports scores here because some people record the games and they would like to experience the game as if they'd never seen or heard about it being played uh, in the evening when they get home. So, I, if the Cowboys win or if the Cowboys lose, yay! Uh, but keep that to your own circle. Don't let it come up here. I want to see if they win, yay! If they lose, uh, So we don't share sports scores. Anything else, honey? Uh, okay, really do sign up on the email. Though if you haven't done that, please do that. It's, I think it's in the back. And what was the thing about the notes? Uh, we have last week's, we have some last week's notes, but once they're gone, they're gone. We've, uh, in the past, we've collected notes and we try to bring past notes every week and we wound up with a whole cart full of notes that no one wanted. And uh, so anyway, we thought this year we'll be a little bit better stewards. And once the notes from the previous week are gone, sorry. They're gone. But I bet if you emailed Laurie, she would know how to email that to you. Okay. I think that's all we have. What are we doing tonight? Genesis 12 through 25. Oh, good, 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 good. Oh, this is really good. This is good stuff. All right, let me pray. Here we go. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Your word is truth. Would you have your spirit uh, take what is yours and implant it in our brains and in our hearts tonight. I pray for this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week I got asked um, why I picked certain things to put in, and I chose to leave other things out. Great question. Uh, You'll find the same tonight. I may not cover your um, pet chapter or topic or hey, what about. Feel free to ask me. Uh, You can email me if you'd like. Um, But I have to to move through the whole Old Testament like we're trying to do and tell you the story. Uh, I do have to leave some details out, which are really fun, good details, but I can't tell you the story if I hit all the details. I hope that makes sense. Um, I think you'll find if you'll stick with it, it'll it'll be satisfying enough, but it certainly won't answer all your questions, um, at least during this one class, or or this one... uh, Well, it is a class. It's a long class, but it's a long class. Okay, chapter 12. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. So there's a couple of preliminaries here. Uh, We talked about format. If you need children's ministry, Anna Caudill is your contact person. If you would print your name tag out each week, 
Uh, one, it helps people at your table get to know who you are. Two, it just lets us know how many people are coming. Um, interesting, yours still said Gospel of Mark, and so um, obviously we're working through that. Uh, there's a class email sign-up on the side table, and audio and notes are now up on the Christ Chapel website. So last week it was a little delayed because we were experimenting with the video. Since the video is no more, uh, last week's lesson is up on the website. I saw it, I think, Wednesday. Hopefully they'll be up by Monday or Tuesday after we finish the lesson. Um, okay, good. Genesis. We're still in Genesis. Yes, we are. Family tree of faith. So I suggested to you last time that what we're doing is we're, um, Moses is writing, let's see from your direction, this is east, so we're staying on this side, so here's the Jordan River. So Moses is on this side of the Jordan River, he's with the people of Israel, they're about to cross over, the second generation is about to cross over the Jordan, and the people want to know one question, how did we get here? And Moses says, I can tell you that. And so he goes back and he connects where they are. They're about to step over into the promised land. And he backs up and says, let me tell you how this all began. So he starts with, in the beginning. In the beginning, God did some things. And then Abraham came along. And then Isaac and Jacob. And he tells them this story of how they got from True story, but how they got from way back here to where they are right now. He's trying to tie where they currently are to how it all got started. And if you'll follow Moses' chapter divisions, which is what I, uh, on my book chart from last week, if you'll follow those, you'll see how Moses is unfolding this story that he's telling. What you really wind up with in Genesis then is the family tree of faith. And you get to see that a little bit tonight. You saw it when we got to uh, chapter 25. Okay, end of chapter 20, well, not end of chapter 25, chapter 25, verse 11. Right, we finished with the death of Abraham. Chapter 25, verse 12, this is the account of, or, you know, whatever happened to the family of Ishmael. So Moses tells us, there's a family line that's being unfolded. And, but your question is, if you were one of these people standing right here, you go, no, whoa, what, uh, what happened to Ishmael? And so he gives you a little paragraph on this is what happened to Ishmael. Now let's go back to Isaac. And he keeps telling you the family tree of faith. But along the way, he'll give you little glimpses as to what happened to the people, the, the boys and girls who weren't chosen, part of the chosen line. He'll give you a little paragraph or two on whatever happened to them. Ishmael, Esau, people like that. Okay, so that's what you're going to see as you finish walking through Genesis. All right, chapter 12, family tree of faith, 1 through 11, quick summary. If you look at Genesis 1 through 11 through a theological lens, a theological lens, you see the difference between God's work and Satan's work, which, not strangely, is the same today. God's work is creative, Satan's work, destructive. God's work blesses people. Satan's work curses people. God's work gives life. Satan's work takes life. God's work redeems. Satan's corrupts. God's work is those who follow him. Satan's is those who play him. God's work delivers the faithful. Satan's work dooms the rebellious. God's work preserves the family line of the faithful. Satan's work fights against God's chosen ones. You see that even from the beginning. Satan is at war with God. So looking through a theological lens in 1 through 11, we saw a lot of these same theological concepts that we're going to see in the New Testament we see their, their birth, their origin, way back here in Genesis 1 through 11. Okay, now let's look at it genealogically. So we looked at it theologically. Let's look at it genealogically. According to the book chart that I gave you, which is using Moses' chapter headings in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and of course everything in them. 
That was Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. Well, whatever became of the heavens and the earth? Whatever became of the heavens and the earth in chapter 2 through chapter 4? What happened? Sin came into the world. How did it come in? Through the evil one. Through Eve. Through Adam. Sin came into the world. That's what happened to the heavens and the earth, is sin came in and messed everything up. Well, then whatever happened to Adam? Whatever happened to this first man that God created? We find out in chapter 5 and chapter 6 what happened to Adam. He started having lots of kids. Oh, and this is great. We didn't talk about this last time. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. I know we hardly look at it, but that's because we're flying over the top. It's not because I don't like it. Okay, chapter 5. Verse 1, right? Whatever became of Adam. This is the written account of the descendants of Adam, or whatever happened, whatever became of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them human. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image. What just happened? Sin has marred the entire human race from Adam. The image of God, not destroyed, but marred in Adam. And now Adam begins to give birth. All human beings afterward now bear a marred image of God, which God then will restore. But it's marred. Adam begins to have children after his image and likeness. How did God make him? In his image and likeness. But then Adam begins having children after his own image. Paul picks up on this in the book of Romans. Whatever became of Adam, he had a lot of kids who were born sinners. That's what happened. Well, whatever became of all those people? Well, you go to Noah. Whatever happened to Noah? Because Noah was a righteous man. Whatever happened to him? Well, God took him through a flood. He wiped out the entire earth. Well, didn't he have three sons? He did, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Whatever became of Shem, Ham, and Japheth? Well, what I'm going to tell you is whatever happened to Shem, because Shem is the chosen line. So he winds his way through this story. Here's Adam, here's Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, three kids come off the ark, suspense, what's going to happen? It's Shem. Shem comes on, Shem is chosen because of his action toward his father, Shem is chosen, that chosen line. Whatever became of Shem, chapter 11, chapter 11, beginning in verse 10, here comes Shem's line all the way through 26. The point of this part of chapter 11 is verse 26. When Terah was 70 years old, he had become the father of Abram, who is later renamed Abraham, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. There's the point of this part. Whatever became of Shem, Abraham became of Shem. If you're sitting over here, standing over here, how did we get here? You know all about Abraham. You're just wondering, where the heck did this guy come from? Well, here's where he came from. He came from Shem's line. Well, so what? Well, Shem is attached to Noah, okay? Noah is attached to Adam. Adam is attached to God. He's traced the family tree of faith, all the way back to God's original intention through this story in Genesis. So then, whatever became of Shem? Abraham became of, whatever became of Shem was Abraham. Tonight's lesson, here is tonight's lesson. Faith is living without scheming. Did you see that or not <laughs> in the life of Abraham? This is the application from Abraham's life. Faith is living without scheming. As we go through each section of a book in the Old Testament, I'm going to give you the night's lesson like this. It'll just be sort of one phrase or one sentence. This is the summary application of this section of Scripture. 
When we look at Abraham's life, we're going to see a man of faith, but we're all going to, also going to see a man who's schemed a lot. And you're going to be, you're going to be shocked. And then you're going to say, uh-oh, there's a mirror. And you're going to look at your own life. And hopefully the scriptures are going to cause you, as they cause me, to say, oh, huh, <laughs> faith is living without scheming. Mm. Okay, how am I going to work that out in my life? Faith is living without scheming. Whatever became of Terah is Abraham. Whatever became of Terah, chapter 11 through chapter 25, it's really not the story of Terah. You probably noticed that. It's really the story of Abraham. So whatever became of Terah was Abraham. In the scriptures, Abraham is the par excellence example of faith. In the New Testament, over and over and over, the faith of Abraham. Abraham, the man of faith. The um, Israelites in Jesus' day, right? We're sons of Abraham. What are you saying? And Jesus goes, well, I can turn these rocks into sons of Abraham. <laughs> they wanted to be attached to Abraham. Why? Because he was the man of faith. He is the, par he's the greatest example of faith from a human point of view, Certainly Jesus more, better, but from a human point of view, Abraham is the par excellence example of faith. This is crazy. Abraham's background. This comes to us from Joshua chapter 24. Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River. And they worshipped other gods. Was Abraham a great guy when God found him? No. He was an idolater. What? <laughs> Didn't God go choose the best guy and say, you're the best guy I can find. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you come over here and help me. No. God steps in to a place called Ur. See, Ur. Ur, uh-oh, what is Ur close to? <gasps> okay, this is also my sound for shock and awe. <laughs> right now you should be saying, Ur is so close to Babylon. Ur would have been like um, modern-day New York. Modern-day New York, cosmopolitan, prosperous, Abraham, more than likely, was living in a penthouse in New York City that overlooks Central Park. I need you to get this in perspective. This is Abraham. He was probably very prosperous, well off, had a lot of stuff. God had been very good to him, but why? No reason. What is Abraham? An idolater. Crazy. God steps in to this guy, into his family, and he decides to do something with him that is even happening to this day. Wow. Okay. His background, he comes out of idolatry. He was not a Yahweh worshiper. He worshiped every kind of thing he could find. He was, oh, he was a godless person. I know it's in the New Testament. Turn to Acts chapter 7. That's in the New Testament. Yes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 7. Here's what Stephen says when he's addressing the uh, Sanhedrin. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asks Stephen, are these accusations true about you? They'd spent some time accusing him. This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. Why did Abraham follow God? Because he met God. And he left everything to follow him. Why is Abraham such an outstanding example of faith? Because when he met God, his life changed permanently and completely. Like many of you, when you met God, your life changed. That's what happened to Abraham. His life changed. Things that used to be important to him were no longer important to him. Things that he never used to think of were things that began to consume him in a positive way. He's converted at the age of 75. Are you ever tempted to look at somebody and say, they're too old to come to faith in Christ? I know you. I know what you've thought. You've thought that. And so have I. That person's too old. There's no way they could come to Christ. They're, they're just too old. Abraham is 75 years old. God changes his life totally and completely. There's a life-changing act of faith. His legacy that he leaves in the New Testament and on the people of God is a picture of the nation. Abraham is a picture of the nation. What? Oh, did, did you not read Genesis 12 and 13? Well, it's strangely silent. What happens in chapter 12 and 13? There's a famine in the land. Where does Abraham go? Egypt. What happens? God delivers him. Where does he go? To the promised land. Sound familiar? Should. It's supposed to. Abraham walked the steps that the nation would walk coming out of the Exodus, going into Egypt and coming back out. Abraham was the prototype, and the nation of Israel just walked, basically walked in his footsteps hundreds of years later. Yeah? As you read through the Old Testament, don't forget to, to look and think about what you're reading, because the things that are in there are stunning. Abraham goes from the promised land because of a famine down into Egypt, because he thinks he's going to be safe there and things are going to be good. Uh-oh, not so good. God sends him out, and where does he go? He goes back to the promised land. Isn't that what happened to Israel? Right? They go down there because of a famine. Remember the end of, Ex uh, the end of Genesis? Why do they go down? Why does, why does everybody go down to see Joseph? Because there's a famine in the land. Remember that? How does it work out for him in Egypt? Oh, not so well. God shows up, frees them. Where do they go? To the promised land. It's already been acted out in miniature through the life of Abraham. One of his legacies is he's a picture of the nation before it happens. He's the New Testament example of faith, as I said. He is the spiritual father of Christians, says Paul. He dies at the age of 175. Here's the truth about Abraham. He started late, but finished great. He started late, but finished great. I want to spend some time now. I'm going to, this is how we're going to survey 12 through 25. We're going to look at four characteristics of his walk, his life of faith. Four characteristics, and I'm going to unpack some things as we go along. First, First characteristic about Abraham, he was a man of faith. He was a model of a faithful God follower. First, he was a convert. There is a time in his life that he knows absolutely positively he met God and it caused a change in his life. He was a convert and it's written there for us. He was a servant. 
you read 12 through 25. Uh, he may have had a lot of stuff, but how many of you would have traded a penthouse overlooking Central Park for a tent? To wander around, if you've been to Israel, if you haven't, it is your destiny. Begin saving up to go. You need to go to Israel. When you go to Israel, you're going to find there are certain places in Israel that are lush, like it will grow anything. There's other parts of Israel that look like the moon. It, it, it looks inhospitable. Guess where Abraham is living? On the moon. He, 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 what he gave up and he's wandering around in a tent is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable testimony to him meeting God and his life of faith. God says, you know what? You're going to leave her. And I want you to go to the desert. Okay, God. <laughs> How many of you would have said yes? I wouldn't have. I would have said, you know, I kind of like it here. I know, but you're not going to do that. Here's, here's where we're going. He goes. It's absolutely remarkable, his faith. He's a servant. What he forsook, the life he left behind for a tent, to become a pilgrim, to become a sojourner. Another example for Israel and another example for you and for me. We are but aliens and strangers here. We are to be walking around intense, not getting too settled down because we don't know where God may want to move us. He's a great example. He's a worshiper. At least four times he builds altars and he worships the Lord, right? The Lord leads him someplace, he builds an altar and he worships the Lord. I think that happens four times, maybe five, but at least four times. So he's a convert, he's a servant, he's a worshiper. He's also a witness, what am I thinking of with witness? Remember when he, his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, after they come back from Egypt, are fighting? What is Abraham most concerned about? That our herdsmen see us fighting. And this is not right. So let's divide up. And he gives Lot the choice. He wants to be a great witness to God with his faith. He was a brother. <clears throat> you know, Lord, am I my brother's keeper? <coughs> Excuse me. Answer, yes. What does he do? Uh, if I were Abraham, and I would have given Lot choice, which was very gracious. Lot should have given Abraham choice. Abraham gave Lot choice. Lot chooses, basically, Sodom and Gomorrah. You know what I would have said if I were Abraham? You made your bed, you lie in it. You got captured by these crazy kings who come in and have war over you. That's your trouble, buddy. You got hauled off, you and all your stuff. You got hauled off way north. Bummer for you. Not my problem. I'm staying here. What does Abraham do? He gets 318 men and he goes up and he kicks some tail way north in Israel. Wow. And what does he do? He captures everybody and brings them back safe. That's what a brother does. He pursues Lot all the way to Dan. Now, this question always comes up, so I'm going to answer this question. Dan was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons, haven't been born yet. How could this be named Dan? Oh, it's an error in the Bible. <laughs> Here's what it means is someone came in later and adjusted the name to the name of Dan. Under the inspiration of God's spirit, that's what happened. Don't want you to get freaked out and say, look at this, look at this right here. Okay, the spirit of God had it written and the spirit of God took an editor at some place after the tribes were uh, distributed and he went back and he edited the name of the city from whatever it was to Dan. That's what happened. I'm okay with that. You should be okay with that. It's not the only place it happens. And if somebody throws this in your face, you go, okay. It's still accurate. They went to the same city. They just changed the name. 
okay. It's like changing Fort Worth to Panther City. You go, <gasps> you got a problem with that? I don't. It's the same thing, just a different name, same place. That's what's happening here. So don't let anybody throw that back in your face and go, there's an error in the Bible. There's not. Abraham is a brother, and he withholds nothing from God, including Isaac. Question, how long did Abraham wait for God to fulfill his promise to bring about Isaac? 25 years. Have you ever waited 25 hours for God to do something? 25 days, 25 months, 25 years, Abraham waits. Can you imagine this? 25 years, Isaac is born. He grows up to become a young man. And God says, hey, Abraham, have this idea. Take Isaac up to this hill I'm going to tell you about and kill him. Huh? If you were Abraham, what would you have done? I, I would have left town. I'm not going to do that. What? What? What does Abraham do? He gets up early the next morning, and he does what God tells him to do. Why? Hebrews chapter 11. Because Abraham reasoned God must be able to raise him from the dead. That's what Abraham reasoned. That's what it tells us in Hebrews. This is Abraham knows what's, uh, Abraham has a post-it note this big of what he knows about God. You and I have this. He has a post-it note, and he goes, right oh Lord, I'll do it. And I guess you're going to bring him back from the dead, because once I kill him, he's going to be dead. But if this is the guy, you're going to have to bring him back to life. Is that amazing faith? Yes. Yes, this is amazing faith. He withholds nothing from God. He's a convert, a servant, a worshiper, a witness, a brother, and he withholds nothing from God. What a great picture. Some of you know this. This foreshadows another father and son. Abraham foreshadows God the father, the sacrificer. Isaac foreshadows God the son, the sacrifice, who, by the way, carried his own wood up the hill. The whole scene foreshadows Gethsemane. Did Jesus know he came to die? Yes. Is that what he's wondering while he's praying in Gethsemane? Probably not. What is he wondering? Think about this story. What does God provide? A ram in the thicket. Um... Daddy, is there any other way out of this? If not, then your will be done. But if there's another way out, I'm game. You know what Jesus' question is, in my opinion? Daddy, is there a ram in the thicket? It's what you did before. Maybe there is one. I don't know. But either way, I'm good. I'll do what you ask. Jesus knew he came to die. But he's wondering if there's something else. And the answer was, no, son. There is no ram in the thicket this time. It is you. And Jesus said, thy will be done. What a great picture. Way back here. How far are we into the Bible? Not very far. And already we're seeing a foreshadowing of the coming of our Lord and his Father and their interaction. Abraham is a man of faith. He's also a man with a covenant. Now, there were different types of covenants in the Old Testament. There's a handshake. We still have sort of a handshake covenant. Uh, back in my, my, my father's 87, and back in his day, he tells me all the time, you know, if you were going to buy something, land or whatever from someone, you, you shook on it. I mean, you, you gave your word. That was, you didn't have to sign anything. That's what you did. A handshake was worth a signature. That's what it was in the Old Testament. They also had what they called a shoe covenant. How do I know that? From the book of Ruth. And you've read the book of Ruth, and you went, yeah, it was weird. Why'd that guy take his shoe off and give it to that other guy? That was weird. 
You know what he was doing? He was saying, I give you permission to walk on this land. So there was a shoe covenant. Salt covenant. It was in the desert. I would have had a bag of salt to, to take and eat, and you would have had a bag of salt. If we made a covenant, I'd say, I'd take a pinch of my salt, and you'd take a pinch of your salt, and we would exchange. And I'd say, when I can get my salt back out of your bag, that's when this covenant will be broken. And when you can get your salt back out of my bag, that's when this covenant will be broken. Virtually impossible, right? Because my salt gets lost in your bag, and your salt gets lost in my bag, because it's all getting mixed up. But that was the symbolism. The most stringent, the most... Uh, the supreme kind of covenant to make was a blood covenant. Blood covenant. Chapter 15 is such a blood covenant. It comes off of chapter 12 where God made some promises to Abraham. Chapter 15 is where the actual covenant gets made. God tells Abraham to cut certain kinds of animals in half and put a half over here and a half over here. Then Abraham kind of seems like he goes to sleep, and Abraham, but he's awake enough that he sees a fire pot and a torch walk between the pieces, right? That's the covenant being made. In effect, God, the only one who walked through the pieces, Abraham did not walk through the pieces, only God walked through the pieces Implication in Genesis 15 is God is putting his own life on the line. This covenant that I'm going to make with you, Abraham, I'm putting my life on the line that this will come to pass. Which leads us to, tonight is one of the most important lessons of this whole class. If you don't get this, the rest of the Old Testament will be harder to understand. This is sort of the key that's going to unlock the entire Old Testament for you. Ooh, that's a pretty big build-up, isn't it? The Abrahamic covenant is the subject of Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. 12 is the promises, 15 is the covenant, 17 is the covenant of circumcision, which is to say who's in the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and who's not. 12, 15, and 17, it's the backbone of the Bible, God makes three promises to Abraham in chapter 12. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make a lot of seed. You're going to be the father of a big nation. And I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Right? He promises him land, seed, and a blessing. Chapter 15. Some other stuff has happened, including this strange picture of Melchizedek who comes on the scene, who is the king of righteousness. Ah, who is he? He's probably a real guy. And we only get this little short, tiny movie of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek knows about Yahweh. Melchizedek could be a Christophany, right? You've heard of theophany, which means a pre-incarnate appearance of God. But there's only been one who has ever shown himself to mankind, and that is Christ. So it would be more accurate to say this could be a Christophany, is a pre-incarnate picture of our Lord Jesus. Could be. It's probably a guy. It's probably a priest who the writer to Hebrews says symbolizes the king of righteousness who ultimately is the Lord Jesus. But this guy comes on the scene. This is just a crazy thing. And what does Abraham do? He gives him a tenth. And Paul will go back and use that to show how Abraham... Um, gave tithes to Levi, who was in the loins, and it's just all these kind of, gave, uh, gave tithes to Melchizedek. Anyway, it's crazy. We'll get to Hebrews. But this is a really, really important little tiny passage for later on in the New Testament. So I didn't, I didn't want to gloss over it, but highlight it. It's probably a guy. He's probably the king of righteousness, and he knows the same God that Abraham knows. You should be saying to yourself, now wait a minute, didn't God pick Abraham to reveal himself to the entire world? How is a Gentile running around who also seems to know this God? <laughs> You'll just have to wait. 
God promises Abraham land, seed, and a blessing. There are three characteristics to this Abrahamic covenant that I'm going to explain to you. First, it's unilateral, meaning it's one way. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Does God say in this covenant, if you do this, then I will do that? What? What do you mean, no? (laughs) Now we're talking about the Mosaic covenant. If you do this, then I will do this, says God. What does he say in the Abrahamic covenant? Here's what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a big nation. And I'm going to bless you. He doesn't say, if you do these things. He says, this is what I am going to do. It's unilateral. It's one way. It's not bilateral. It's unilateral. Second, it's unconditional. There's no ifs and thens running on in what God tells Abraham. Last, it's unending. Genesis 17, 7 through 8 says this is an unending or an eternal covenant. What does that mean? That means the Abrahamic covenant is still in force, still in play today. It did not end in the Old Testament. It is still awaiting its fulfillment today. The Abrahamic covenant is still out there and we are living in it and under it. (gasps) That's great news for you and for me. But nobody's ever told you this before. Abrahamic covenant, here's how it works out through the rest of the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant promises land, seed, and blessing. The Palestinian covenant will come along in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and it'll amplify the land portion of the promise and the covenant. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, will come along and we'll find out something about the seed. And then finally, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, comes along and it amplifies the blessing portion of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, blessing, all flowing out of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the umbrella. It's the overarching covenant It covers three parts, land, seed, blessing, and God's going to give three more covenants throughout the Old Testament to reinforce and amplify the Abrahamic covenant through these other covenants. Does that make sense? Some of you are like, I don't know what you just said. There's an Abrahamic covenant. Chapter 12, 15, and 17. Chapter 12, it was promised. Chapter 15, it was cut. It was done. Only God walks through the pieces, meaning this relies on me and me alone to bring to pass. And then he spends other places, there's other places in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 28, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and Jeremiah 31, where he amplifies and reinforces the promises he made in the Abrahamic covenant. Well, you'll look at it again. You'll get it. Here's what that looks like in a picture. Some of us like pictures more than words, like me. So here's a little thing that Laurie and I put together to show you from garden to garden how the Abrahamic covenant fleshes itself out through the timeline of the Old and New Testaments. You can see the land promise. It goes to a dotted line because Israel no longer became the ruler of her own land beginning in 586 B.C. That, not coincidentally, is the time of the Gentiles of which Jesus speaks. The seed goes on until they reject Jesus Because he says, I am your king, they said, we will not have this one rule over us. And he says, Burger King. Have it your way. And the kingdom is now invisible. What? What does Jesus tell us to pray for? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. What is Jesus wanting us to pray for? The kingdom to come. Why does he want us to pray for the kingdom to come? 
Because it's part of the Abrahamic covenant. He's creating a kingdom. Remember in, in part of our Genesis, it said, and out of your body will come kings. And you're like, well, that's weird. I've read that since I was seven. What? So what? One of those kings is Jesus. In fact, the par excellence example of the king is Jesus. He says, pray for the kingdom because I'm going to be the king. And you're going to be my subjects who love me. Thy kingdom come, Lord. Thy will be done on earth as it's already being done in heaven. Jesus tells us to pray for this. Are we praying for his kingdom to come? And right now, it's already here, in a sense, in us. It's not out there yet. It's coming. And you know what the capital of the world is going to be? You've heard Ted say it a couple of times. You've been here any number of years. You know what the capital city is going to be? Jerusalem. Jesus is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule the world. Psalm 2, with a rod of iron. First time he came as a baby. Second time he comes as a king. He comes as a totally different person in that sense. He's not the meek and mild baby, although he's still meek and mild, but he's coming with righteousness. And he's going to rule the earth for a thousand years from Jerusalem. That's after the tribulation. That's called the millennial kingdom. We'll get to that when we do Revelation. That ushers in the eternal kingdom, and we're back at the end of Revelation to a garden. Back to the beginning. We started off in a garden. Where does the whole Bible end? In a garden. We start in a garden where men and women are walking with God in complete fellowship, right? Where do we end? In a garden where men and women are walking in complete fellowship with God. Is this amazing to you? It's almost like someone knew what they were doing when they put the Bible together. We start in a garden, we end in a garden. God is a genius. Blessing. There are blessings promised in Jeremiah 31 to the people of Israel. You know what those blessings are? A new mind, a new heart, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Should I say that again? A new mind, a new heart, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. What? Does that sound at all New Testament to you? <laughs> it should. <laughs> when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, lifted the bread and the cup, what did he say? This is the... What did he say with the cup? You've taken it plenty of times. What does he say? This is the... New covenant. What's he talking about? The new covenant that Jeremiah announced. Ezekiel also announced it too. This is happening way back in 5 and 600 BC. God knew it was coming. And you know what he did? Do you and I have a new mind, a new heart, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit? Do you and I have that as followers of Christ? Nod your head. Yes. Yes, you have that. Who was supposed to have it? Israel. We got their stuff. What is God doing? He's trying to make them jealous. The Gentiles have your stuff, guys. You didn't want me? Fine. The Gentiles want me and love me, and I've given them the stuff same as I was going to give to you. You want it? I'd like to give it to you. What do you have to do? Bow the knee to Jesus. We have their stuff. Oh, isn't this fun? We're hardly even through Genesis. Oh my gosh, this is so good. All right, you can look at this picture later on. You can put it under your pillow. Maybe it'll kind of sink in. You'll look at it a few times. You'll get it. All right, so Abraham is a man of faith. He's a man with a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. That's why it's called the Abrahamic covenant from Abraham. He's also a man of courage and fear. His courage, he risked himself and his men for his brother, Lot. Lot was his nephew, but it was his brother. And why? Because he's going to teach us that family is worth fighting for. We're going to run into this again later in Genesis. Family is worth fighting for. 
We also see his fear. Twice, he relied on a half-truth to protect himself. And we learn from the text that you either walk in faith, resulting in strengthening, or you walk in fear, resulting in shame. This is the lesson from the life of Abraham. You can walk in faith and be strengthened, or you can walk in fear and it will end in shame. Abraham. Abraham. Who did I just say? Abraham. Who is Abraham? The par excellence example of faith. An idolater who was converted. Who left everything and did all this stuff. Wait a minute, that same guy is the guy who tells half-truths to save his own behind? Yeah, same guy. And how many times did he do it? At least twice. Twice it's recorded. Are you kidding me? Why is that guy in here? If the life of Abraham does not encourage you, I don't know what to do for you. Because <laughs> that sounds a lot like me. And maybe it sounds like you. There's been some fantastic things that God has done in your life. There's also been some pretty dumb things you and I have done. And guess what? We not only did it once, we did it twice. Maybe we even did it more. And what does God do with Abraham? Don't miss this. Does God say, you knucklehead, I'm changing this from the Abrahamic covenant to something else. I thought you would have appreciated what I did for you. You evidently didn't. You've disappointed me. And I'm taking the good stuff away. Is that what God did? How did God treat him? With grace, forgiveness, loving kindness. As an example for how God treats you and how he treats me. And how he's treated me this way all the years of my life, even before I knew him. When you're tempted to think that God is a performance-oriented God, think about Abraham. What a good guy. What a great example of faith. What a knucklehead. And if you're writing the story of my life, it would be even worse. And maybe some of your lives too. God is a God of grace. He redeems. He recreates. He does things his own way for his own glory so that we would worship him and say, who are you who would treat me like this? And with the psalmist in Psalm 103, you would say with the psalmist, he has not treated me as my sins deserve, nor has he rewarded me according to my iniquities. So great is his love. For those who call him daddy. He is not like you sometimes think he is. He is completely and utterly different. And he does treat us based on performance but not yours. The performance of our Lord Jesus, who, by the way, was perfect. Abraham didn't know all we know about God. Abraham was a man of faith, a man with a covenant, a man of courage and fear, but he was also a man with a flaw. He struggled with self-reliance in difficult situations. He took matters into his own hands when there were famines in the land and then when there was a famine in his wife's womb. He took matters into his own hands. He ran ahead of God. Where did he get Hagar? Which didn't work out so well for him. Where did he get Hagar? Egypt. Why? Because he went down to Egypt in the famine when he should have stayed put. Where did God tell him? I've given you this land. But he said, no, I see a famine. I've got to get myself to Egypt. And God follows him there and goes, yeah, this is not what I wanted. And while you're there, wow, you picked up Hagar. How'd that work out for you, Abraham? Oh, not so well. <laughs> My goodness, those peoples have been at each other ever since. 
Why? Because someone decided to be self-reliant and run ahead of God. He struggled with self-reliance in difficult situations. And many times he trusted more in his schemes than in God. Some of you are right now sitting out there saying, Bill, you've gone from teaching to meddling. The truth is the self-sufficient don't need God and the self-reliant don't trust God. The dependent follower learns that God not only sees their circumstances but is attentive to their prayers. And do you know how he shows us that? Through Hagar. Remember? Sarah sends Hagar away. She's convinced she's going to die. What happens? Name him Ishmael. The Lord hears. Then then he shows her a well that they call Be'er Lahiroi, which means the God who sees me. If God heard and saw Hagar in the wilderness, how much more is his eye and ear trained and attentive to you wherever you are? If that's what he'll do for the unchosen line, what will he do for the chosen line? The dependent follower learns that God not only sees their circumstances, but is attentive to their prayers. He heard Hagar praying, and he rescued her. Scheming, on the other hand, leads to loss. Abraham lost his witness in front of the Gentiles twice. He lost blessing and he lost peace. It led to strife, heartbreak, and unintended consequences, particularly with Hagar and Ishmael. Faith is living without scheming. Let me see if I can illustrate this just a little bit. Here's what a walk of faith looks like. Some of you have seen... um, like Stephen Covey did two circles, one inside the other. Other people have used the same sort of illustration, so I'm using the same sort of illustration. There are certain things that, for which I am to take responsibility in my life. Those things that are listed in the Scripture that are my responsibility, I am to obey. Right? So far, so good? If it's my responsibility, says the Scripture... And it's listed in here, it's my job to obey what God says I am to do in that particular area of responsibility. But I don't know, I don't know about your life. My life has things that I'm concerned about that are far bigger and greater and more extensive than the things over which I am responsible. Is that true of your life? What happens, or or how am I to live my life out here in this area that is of concern to me, but it's not my responsibility? I am to trust. Remember the old hymn? Lewis nor Josh will let me into the choir. But for those of you who can carry a tune, you know, trust and obey. Or there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. The hymn writer did not have this picture in mind, but it works. If I am responsible for it, I am to obey. But I'm concerned about it. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe there's a job I'd like to have. Maybe it's a health situation. What about There's lots of things I'm concerned about that are not my responsibility. I cannot control them or influence them. Aha. What will happen to me if I live this way? I will experience joy and peace. That's what the scriptures and the Lord promise. I like those things. Joy and peace. Is that easy to walk in obedience and trust? 
absolutely not. What would I rather do? I would rather scheme. And instead of being content with where my area of responsibility ends, I would rather extend my area of responsibility a little bit and begin to play God. I know how to get that job. I know how to solve that relational problem. I know how to fix this. And what do I do? I turn to Hagar because my wife has told me to do it. Right? It's really her fault again, just like Eve. <laughs> what didn't Abraham do? Pray. Abraham didn't go ask God what he wanted or what he thought. Sarah said, I want a kid. Go sleep with Hagar. Okay, dear. <laughs> For you, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, Abraham, what are you not thinking here? Oh, gosh, Abraham, you're a lot like me. <laughs> you don't think. You just act. You scheme. You say, I know how God intends to bring this to pass. I sleep with Hagar. Never mind the fact that she's from Egypt. Never mind the fact she's not really a person of <laughs> who should be in my circle here. God will take care of all that. It'll be great. The end justifies the means after all, right? I begin to play God, and I begin scheming how to do that. What happens? Well, in my own mind, I start to justify what I'm doing. This is, this is good and right. It's okay to manipulate, and it's okay to run ahead. This is how God would want it. I'm just helping him. What do I wind up with? Fear, anxiety, and stress. Ooh. What was it if I got, if I lived the first way? Oh, yeah, joy and peace, okay? What happens when I start living this way? Fear, anxiety, and stress. I could be there yesterday, and I could be there tomorrow. Easy. Because I scheme so fast, I don't even recognize I'm doing it. You say, well, could there be scheming the other way? Indeed, there could. What happens if I scheme by underreaching? In other words, I'm not going to take responsibility for everything God says is mine to take responsibility for. For instance, uh, not forgiving those who've hurt me. Not loving those who've betrayed me. Those who've denied me. Denied me out of self-protection, maybe. Those who've disappointed me are those who just don't get me. I am not going to take responsibility to do what Jesus has told me to do, to love my enemies. Ted had us this morning, or this morning or this evening, pray for the poor and needy. Do you remember often to pray for the poor and needy, the truly poor and needy who need our prayers? Do you, do you ever remember them? It's seldom that I do. I'm so convicted by that line this morning. Jesus cared about those folks. Why don't I? I'm not taking responsibility for everything he told me to be responsible for. Not forgiving those who've hurt me. Not loving those who've betrayed me. Or denied me out of self-protection or whatever reason who've disappointed me or just didn't get me. I'm not going to take responsibility for that. What am I going to do instead? I'm going to rationalize why it's okay for me to not take responsibility. I'm going to justify it, and then I'm going to probably turn around and blame them. You know, it's that guy on the corner who stands by Shell. He ruins it for all the poor people because I so dislike him. I think, you're an able-bodied guy. Go, go get a job. I don't know anything about that person but I use him to now make a stereotype of all poor and needy people, and I justify and rationalize. This is why I don't go help them. They're all liars, cheats, thieves. It's a, that's wrong, but that's what, see what I'm saying? Now, I know you're all Christians, and I'm just the only sinner in the room who does that. <laughs> but that's a picture of what it means to rationalize, justify, and blame. 
What does that make me? Self-righteous, lonely, and angry. How do I want to live? I want to live without scheming. I want to take responsibility for what's mine to take responsibility, and I want to obey. For those areas that I'm concerned about but I can't do anything about, I have to trust God. And do you know what that often means? A four-letter word. No, it's not a cuss word. I saw you all lean forward. Is he going to cuss? <laughs> W-A-I-T. I hate that word. Wait. Does God see and does God know? Example of Hagar, the unchosen line, yes, he does. How much more does God see and is his ear attuned to those of us who have the spirit of his son living in us? I need joy and peace. And so what I need to do is obey and trust. And so God chooses Abraham to be his man, a descendant of Adam and a descendant of Noah. God makes an eternal covenant with him, giving him rights to the land, seed, and blessing. And through faith, and in spite of his fears and flaws, God begins to fulfill his promises to Abraham even in his lifetime. And he passes on this inheritance to Isaac, whose life we will study next week. Next week, read about the life of Isaac. Easy, 25 through 28. Don't let it sneak up on you. It doesn't seem like much, and it's not, but don't wait till Sunday night. Read ahead during the week. It's a great story, the life of Isaac, the second patriarch. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done for this evening. Father, thank you for the life of Abraham. He is the spiritual father of Christians in the sense that uh, we certainly want to be a progeny who are defined by our faith. Thank you for using him, for giving us these examples from his life. Uh, a man of faith, clearly, but also a man with fears and flaws. A man just like us, uh, who we can really connect to and relate to. And we can see how you treated him. And that teaches us just a little bit more about who you are and how you treat us. So we thank you for Abraham. We thank you for how you treat men of faith with fears and flaws. And that gives us great encouragement and leads us to worship you tonight. I pray. And I pray that your hand of blessing and favor would be on each person who's with us tonight for this next week. In Jesus' name, amen.